Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Titus, and today I'm joined again by my good friend, Flag Taylor, for another conversation in our Middle Brow series. Today we are talking about our first Paul Newman movie, a 90s movie about small-town America, the quirky relationships and the difficulties in people's lives, and Thanksgiving, the American family holiday. Today we're talking about Nobody's Fool, the 1994 movie written and directed by Robert Benton from a novel by Richard Russo. The cast is pretty impressive. Paul Newman headlines the cast and the support uh, is Bruce Willis and Melanie Griffith and Philip Seymour Hoffman and the ancient at that point Jessica Tandy and uh, all sorts of other people in smaller roles that make for a surprisingly impressive picture of small town America. Now, Flag, you suggested we should talk about this movie. I was writing about Thanksgiving movies. I was looking for Thanksgiving movies and wondering why aren't there more Thanksgiving movies since it's the American holiday? And then we hit upon this one as something we both found very quirky and very enjoyable. So tell me, how did you discover Nobody's Fool and the novelist who wrote the story, Richard Russo? So hello, Titus. Welcome. I'm glad to be back after too long of a hiatus. It's great to be back on the podcast. I've missed discussing films with you. So Richard Russo, he must have been recommended to me by a friend or teacher or something. And I remember reading the novel, Nobody's Fool and really liking it. And then, as I said, in the warm up to the show, I, I think I probably saw this movie in the theater and, and really enjoyed it. But I was reminded of this movie uh, a few months ago when I noticed that AMC is producing a, a series called Lucky Hank, which is based on another Richard Rousseau novel about an English professor. That novel is called Straight Man. And so I thought, oh, what, what other Richard Rousseau stuff has been uh, you know made into a movie or series? And I was also reminded of Empire Falls, which is, I think, an HBO series that I haven't actually have not seen, but that was also another Richard Rousseau novel. I've actually seen him give a talk. He wrote an autobiography. He's from upstate New York, not too far from Saratoga Springs. So this this whole region, basically kind of from the Catskills up to Albany and then north of Albany, Utica area, all, all of this region was very wealthy and, and kind of powerful region up through you know the late 19th century, early 20th century. And so it was thriving and kind of the, the place where wealthy New York City people used to go to take in the waters, check out the racetrack in the case of Saratoga. General Electric was a company based in Schenectady for many years. I think it's still there in much smaller form, but kind of a shell of its former self. And then because of the Erie Canals, right, this was kind of a bustling area, again, in the early part of the the 20th century. Well, all of that right, has been kind of hollowed out and this whole region has fallen on hard times. And so Richard Rousseau, I, I forget the town that he's from, but it, it's somewhere in this area. So a lot of his books take place in these small towns that have been kind of hollowed out and left for dead, right? There's not much industry anymore. And so it's, you know, he, he portrays small town life in an atmosphere of kind of post-industry degradation and all that. So it's just a familiar, when I read his books or, or watch some of the films or TV shows that are based on his work, it evokes the same feel. And I don't, have to drive very far from my home where I live now to sort of see what he's describing. So, and just in revisiting the film, I think it's a really interesting and much deeper film than it has at first glance. You you mentioned the ensemble cast. There's just a number of really impressive performances. None of them, of course, with the exception of Newman, none of them dominate because they're all pretty small characters, but they all are played really well. So it's a fun movie to watch. It's entertaining. It's very funny in places, can be very sad in places. So it's a hard movie to pigeonhole it. I wouldn't say it's quite a drama because it lacks kind of big dramatic hinge moments where 
you know, if not for this moment, then, you know, what comes next wouldn't have happened. There's no big dramatic axis. So I wouldn't call it a drama. I also wouldn't call it quite a comedy. All has very funny moments. So it's a difficult movie to categorize in that way. But it is very, very thought provoking and a movie that I think is worth revisiting. It bears repeated, repeated viewings. And you don't get very many. Paul Newman, I think, was around 60. No, no, no. I think it was 70 when he made this movie. The character that he plays is supposed to be 60. So this is when he's getting on in years. And it's, of course, great to see an actor as good as Newman is in, in one of his later roles. Yeah, I think you're right. It's an unusual mix of very good setting and a very good cast, both of which have this odd character. As you said, the, the, the region upstate New York fallen on hard times. It's a bad half century or more, at least. There are no more Catskill comedians and no more Catskill hotels where people like in the mid-century would go to enjoy the skiing and so on and evenings uh, taking a Henny Youngman show or something yeah, yeah. like that. And Which is also uh, portrayed really brilliantly in um, what's the, now I'm blanking, of course, what's the, the recent TV series about the female comedian? Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Yes, yes. So th so in the second season of Mrs. Maisel, there's a great series of episodes about these these places in the Catskills that uh, yep, that's I, right. I, I highly the, recommend. That was yeah. the pipeline, New York City to the Catskills. <laughs> yeah. And of course, by the 90s, all that is gone, as you said. But Paul Newman is not a young man anymore. He's not the guy who charmed America with his blue eyes and his smile in all of those uh, 70s pictures and the 60s, I guess. So th there's a melancholy air, the picture as a whole, and maybe a, a kind of reluctance to go for either comedy or drama, because it's not clear where is this entire region that was once America, the Empire State. Where is it going? People are still around. Life continues. Just not very inspiring. There's no inspiring character. There are charming and amusing characters, and some of the things that happen in the movie are almost hysterically funny, out outrageously funny in some scenes, but nobody's inspiring. It's not that kind of movie. It's a movie that makes you think about this odd aspect of life that it continues. As you said, there are no dramatic hinge moments. There's not a decisive choice or turn of events or somebody does something to somebody else and there's no going back. Life seems to be one series of things after another, but they're not without rhyme or reason that they have to do with the characters of these characters. They have to do with the way they were brought up and with how uh, Americans, being Americans, have to deal with not being in a position to fulfill their dreams. As I said, this is in its own strange way a Thanksgiving movie. I mean, it's strange because it's not clear that any of these people want to give thanks. And in their defense, it's not clear that they have something for which to give thanks. <laughs> That's right. And the comic side of the movie, I think, is largely about showing that they find what it is that they should be thankful for. And with Thanksgiving, they discover themselves. And since they have things that they should be thankful for, they have things to protect, things to nurture and to help see thrive. Of course, above all, the future, a new generation. Paul Newman gets in touch with his son and his grandson, and he becomes more of a man and more of an American man, a father and a grandfather. So, of course, we should cue our listeners in. So please, Flag, take us briefly through the plot before we discuss all of the important events. Sure, sure. So, yeah, insofar as there is a, a plot with a dramatic arc, it revolves around the character Paul Newman plays. His name is Donald Sullivan, or Sully, as he is referred to by all of his friends and acquaintances in the film. And it's just kind of about Sully's life in this small town and his kind of coming, the movie is really a, a character portrait of Sully coming to understand what and who he is. That's basically the movie. 
him coming to the realization of, of who and what he is and kind of the absence of that self-knowledge at the beginning. And, and as you said, the movie begins with Sully's son, who's played by Dylan Walsh. His name is Peter. He comes to town with his family. He's uh, he's going to his mom's house for Thanksgiving. He actually sees Sully on the road. Sully's hitchhiking after blowing a flat in, in his truck. We learn that Sully left his family when Peter was one years old, but didn't leave the town, but moved maybe three or four blocks away and so had played no part in the upbringing of his son was not uh, you know as as many divorced families are today there's a kind of stepdad and a dad and you know the stepdad plays this important role but the kids remain connected to the biological father right we learned all of that was was not the case that peter sees his father you know once every few years but very sporadic and and certainly had no relationship with his father over the course of his childhood so the movie tells the story of of Sully getting to know his son and then his grandsons again. But it also tells the story of Sully's relationship with his co-worker, Rub. Sully makes a living as a subcontractor in town, and he's a subcontractor who works for a wealthy contractor named Carl Roebuck, who's played by Bruce Willis. Carl Roebuck and Sully don't get along particularly well because uh, it turns out Sully has a bum knee and he blames Carl Roebuck for this bum knee. He's, you know, he had an accident while subcontracting for him. But despite the fact that they seem to hate each other, we also see that they're pretty friendly. And when Carl's wife, Toby, kicks him out one night, we notice that Carl goes to sleep on Sully's couch. For all the uh, tension and, and sort of bitterness there is between Carl and Sully, they seem to get along well enough that he feels comfortable crashing at Sully's house when his wife kicks him out. There are different characters that we see Sully's relationship to. He rents an apartment from this woman, Miss Beryl, who it turns out was his eighth grade English teacher, probably, I would guess, maybe 10, 15 years older than Sully in the movie, but doesn't seem like it's that <laughs> that big of a, a difference in, in age. Sully, of course, you know, we, we meet lots of his other friends. He's friendly with, with the town sheriff. He's friendly with the lawyer. He's friendly with the, the town judge. The lawyer that he, that he has, he, he tries to sue Carl Roebuck to get workers' comp, of course. And we meet this lawyer who turns out has one leg. So there are lots of comedy related to the one-legged lawyer who doesn't seem particularly good at his job. And so again, the, the movie is simply a portrait of Sully's character as revealed through this network of relationships that he has with lots of people. And as I said... Although these relationships, as exemplified in the case of Sully and Carl, they're strained in lots of different ways too, but it doesn't prevent these people from getting together for poker night once a week. So all these characters who you see have problems and difficulties one another, well, you see them around the poker table right in the back of this bar a couple times during the movie. And so again, they they all have, have difficulties and have certain bitternesses towards one another, but they all can't help but depend on one another and crowd around one another when they need friendship and, and, and fellowship in the film. To the extent that there is a hinge moment I guess the one detail I would add is there comes to a point near the end of the movie where Carl Roebuck's wife, Toby, who's played by Melanie Griffith, she's treated crappily by Carl throughout the film. He's cheating on her with different secretaries at work. Toby's had enough and she decides to hell with it. I'm leaving. I'm going to move to Hawaii. And she offers Sully this plane ticket to come with him to Hawaii. Initially, Sully's like, well, hell yeah, I would like to go to Hawaii with a woman, you know, 20 years, my junior, who's beautiful. Why would I want to stay in this crappy town and in, in upstate New York. But at that moment, he realizes he has this moment of realization that, well, now I'm I'm actually turning out to be a father to my son, which I really wasn't 
right until last week. Turns out I have grandkids to whom I'm also an important figure. I have different friendships. I play different roles in other people. So he says, I can't go. And so I think the movie wants to make the point. The old Sully without this self-knowledge probably would have gotten on this plane, but he doesn't. And he's contrasted with Miss Beryl's son, Clive. He's a banker and he's involved in this real estate scheme to get rich. Turns out he was bamboozled by this real estate company. So now he's sold all this real estate, all these lands to the people in town, which are going to be worthless because they're, the land is not going to be developed. What does Clive do? You know, he just leaves. He disappears one night. We never see him again. He's referred to by Sully in, in the film as the bank with lots of contempt. So that's the basic gist of the plot. And yeah, happy to get into any of those details and themes that you think are worth exploring, Titus. I think maybe we should start with Sully and Miss Beryl. It's maybe the strangest thing about this guy. He's Sully is 60 and he is renting a room in Miss Beryl's house. And as you said, she was his eighth grade English teacher. That's somehow a joke. He in a certain way, never got out of school. He in a certain way, never outgrew the mother, the authority of the local school marm. Miss Beryl is played by the aged Jessica Tandy as a school marm. And looking at her, I thought, you know, this is old American Presbyterianism. This is the centuries of the Puritan way of life you see in the sternness and correctness of this woman. She is so old America that she takes tea, not coffee. Mm -hmm. She constantly <laughs> offers him tea through the movie and he rejects it. He said, Hart, he's a cowboy, he wants coffee. Every and time she asks, he says, not now, not ever. But it doesn't doesn't prevent <laughs> so, her yeah, from asking. Yeah. Many good curmudgeonly lines. And I think throughout the movie, you see that these people are mostly equals or rough equals. But there is this one exception. Miss Beryl is somehow better than everybody else. When she looks at people, she looks at them with moral authority. Mm -hmm. She's the only person who tells other people what to do. Now we see a judge and the chief of police in this movie, but they're just trying to manage a pretty weird scene <laughs> and yeah. they, like, they are not in control because it's too chaotic miss beryl does not have those kinds of doubts miss beryl yeah. although she's a miss strangely she has a son nevertheless she is an authority and it seems like maybe he needs her. They carp about each other. They make fun of each other. But in a way, they need each other. Miss Beryl's banker's son, who goes to the local country club, wants to put her in a home and sell her house. And to do that, of course, he has to get rid of her tenant. And so this needy bastard, played by Paul Newman, Sully, turns out to be the key to the woman's freedom. So long as he lives in her house and she says, well, you know, I have a tenant. I can't break the contract. Her son can't put her in a home. You could say that, that Sully is a better son to her than her own son. He takes care of her. He He's the one who fixes the railing. And uh, this is upstate New York by Thanksgiving. It's full of snow. Somebody has to clear that up. Indeed, Sully does a, a bunch of these kinds of errands around the neighborhood, around this small town, making sure that people don't get hurt. Saves the local crazy lady. Yeah, the family founder of the much beloved Hattie's Diner, right? Hattie is probably 85 exactly. years old, yeah, 10 years older than Miss Beryl. She leaves the diner and just wanders down the street, right? And Sully's the one who always has to rescue her and bring her back. So. Yeah. And it's Miss Beryl who tells him he has to take care of this. There's a problem and uh, she knows it, but she can't do anything about it. And he's the only one who will. In his strange way, this rugged individualist plays a rugged individualist who failed. Turns out that you can be a rugged individualist in America, even if you're a failure. He has 
has no money to his name and Sully is trying hard to get some kind of subcontracting job somewhere to get some money but he's still a rugged individualist and uh, nevertheless he's the only man with public spirit in the town because he cares about these other people and he realizes in some way they're even worse off than him but it's Miss Beryl who has that relationship with him who helps him out she is the one who suggests to him that he should be more moral and more public spirited that he should yeah. attend to his duties more and to his vices less. No smoking. Uh, right. But of course, the commands of morality are just aren't enough. Americans aren't that Puritan anymore, not even in upstate New York. Things have changed. And so it is not Miss Beryl that, that, that helps change Sully into who he was supposed to be a long time ago. It's his son. His son Peter comes into town to visit his mother for Thanksgiving and serendipitously sees Sully instead. And Sully needs him. As you said, he's hitchhiking because his, his car is no good anymore. The moment we see the son, Peter, we see that he's a loser. He has two kids in the backseat of his car who are at each other's throats constantly, and he has no authority over them. And his wife bitches that she doesn't like her mother-in-law. And why do they have to come all the way to upstate New York for Thanksgiving? And it's clear that he, she has no confidence in him either. Indeed, coming to Thanksgiving is the way a dutiful son Peter destroys his family. It's not his fault, really. He's just a weakling. But also, in this very funny way, his father turns out to be very important both to breaking up his family and to putting it back together. The son Peter sees Sully and he gives him a ride into town and he invites him to Thanksgiving lunch over at the house. But this turns out to be a bit of a disaster. I would add just a detail. I think you're invoking the kind of Miss Beryl and the son Peter as important kind of poles. Just as Miss Beryl, I would say, thinks of Sully as better than he is, I think Peter thinks of Sully as even worse than he is. And so you see Miss Beryl talking I wouldn't say glowingly, but being pretty complimentary to who to Sully is at one point. You know, she she notices that she asks him to fix this railing, as you said, but he always says he's going to do it, but he, he doesn't get around to it till, you know, very end of the film. So he does what she asks him to do, but it's often not in the timeline that she probably <laughs> would have liked. And and I think at one point in the film, Sully asks him, right, why, why do you always expect me? I mean, this isn't phrased exactly right, but why do you always expect me to do the right thing? And she says something like, well, you bet on that long shot. I mean, it turns out that Sully makes these these bets, a trifecta. Trifecta is making a bet on a horse race where you bet the, the top three horses in order. So when the, if this thing ever hits, right, it's going to pay a lot of money. And she says something like, like well, you're, you know, you're going to pay off eventually. She thinks of Sully as better than he is. But Peter, right, there are a couple really tough moments in the film where, you know, he's, I mean, it sounds brutal, but he's not stating anything false about, you know, his absence, the fact that he left and didn't return when Peter was, was one years old. So, you know, he rubs it in his father's face how much of a failure he is. And so those are, I think, really tough and brutal moments. And Sully, to his credit, you know, doesn't try to deny it. He wasn't, he didn't, doesn't try to excuse himself, doesn't try to give some elaborate account of why he had to do what he did. And he basically says, yeah, I left, but I don't know what to tell you. So you see Sully as a kind of midpoint between Miss Beryl on the one hand and his son Peter on the other. 
And as you say, he starts once Peter is in town for Thanksgiving by sort of happenstance. It turns out that he starts working for his dad. He gets in the middle of the movie. I, th- I don't actually I don't know when it happens, if, if it happened before Thanksgiving. But we learn that he's been let go by, by the University of West Virginia. He's probably an adjunct English professor. His contract is not renewed. And, and so he, he doesn't have anywhere to go. And so he takes a job working with his father as a sub as a subcontractor and over the course of that these few days working they they start to develop this relationship that is very surprising to the both of them <laughs> I, I think they're sort of each of them was surprised by the fact that they kind of enjoy one another's company even despite this obviously ugly and painful history they come to kind of enjoy being around one another yeah i think that's a very important thing that uh, sally was no father at all and this boy grew up with a stepfather who is a nice but very weak man seems to have no strength of will is absolutely dominated by the wife and in the few scenes you see her it's very easy to understand why Sully left her it seems like maybe the wife kicked him out but it's it's very easy to understand why he would leave she is domineering and he has rugged American individualism in him he does not wish to be dominated by a woman and of course the American household somehow requires that strangely enough America is a country run by women and Sully does not really like to be part of this world why would a man prefer to be a failure instead. It's not easy to say, but when you look at the performance, Paul Newman is fairly convincing that there's something about the rugged individualism that is just stronger than something like, don't you want to have some comforts in your life, some kind of affection? Maybe not that much. And that I think is only emphasized by the fact that his family, after all, turns out to be his son and his grandson. He can deal with men. He can't really deal with women. The son, as I said, seems very, very weak. He is his mother's son because his father wasn't dead. She must have been as domineering to him as she was, as she is to her second husband. And it's almost embarrassing to watch. It's very easy to see why Peter's wife leaves him halfway through the movie and takes the kid she likes with her. She has two kids, two boys. One of them she likes because he's a maniac. And the other kid is sort of like his dad and she doesn't care for him. And the thing is that the maniac kid obviously tortures the other kid. Yeah, yeah. But she has absolutely no sympathy for the victim. It reminds her too much of her husband. Right. And the, and the maniac kid, we should say, has... respect weak people if they don't stand up for themselves. Yeah. And in a strange way, Peter only learns to stand up for himself by working for his father. As you say, he can be brutally honest with his father. And he doesn't really make demands or have much by way of expectations. But he brings Sully to the point where Sully realizes that he would not be able to look himself in the mirror anymore if he doesn't do right by this young man. And as a professor of English, and that's somehow like Miss Beryl, who was the English teacher, the eighth grade English teacher. And it made me think why does this even matter? It's hard to... No, why would this even exist? But if you think about it, uh, being the English teacher in a school in an America when most people did not go to high school, much less college, meant that you were teaching them about America through American literature, and you were teaching them maybe manners as well through the way that they are expected to speak. Americans have never enjoyed speaking English correctly. The Americans are very divided on whether people who speak English correctly should be promoted to journalist jobs or maybe 
stoned in the mm-hmm. who knows it's a it, it's a national disagreement but teaching english is somehow part of miss beryl's authority she tried to make civilized people of all of these savage young americans that she dealt with back in the day an english teacher in college however is a wholly different thing because a college teacher as you say he's an adjunct this the movies from 1994 the novel from 93 but it was very prescient in that sense yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or you could just say it was very clear eyed it's a very clear eyed story american college is going to in the direction of adjuncts and adjuncts are you know worse than criminals a criminal maybe is not yeah, able yeah. to have self respect but he could have pride he dares to break the law an adjunct is the slave of slaves the servant of servants something like that it's terrible and and so this this boy somehow maybe believed in making it from the small town to college to university of virginia that's an impressive institution maybe teaching well, i think it's i think it's west i think American. it's west virginia it's west virginia i think yeah that's i think he says the, university uh, of west virginia so that's a bit, yeah it's not it's not Mr. Jefferson's university. <laughs> well, touche, but still the, the the point is that he came from this small town and he, he goes to college and he wants to be a professor of English only to realize that uh, whatever it is that drew him English probably has to do with how sensitive he is and this is not a country that cares for sensitive men whatever the feminists say his wife doesn't respect him and his kids don't respect him and his mother doesn't respect him and he doesn't respect himself accordingly indeed he collapses because he's been fired and then he turns to his father who has had more experience of not being respected and being a failure than anybody <laughs> else in this story right right and who turns out to have been able to to find self respect in 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 going his own way at least within these confines he is uh, still on speaking terms with his now and then boss the contractor he is on speaking terms with the chief of police with whom he plays poker he is not disappointed miss beryl beyond what she will tolerate either he's not entirely a failure actually and strange as it may seem he has therefore much more to say for himself than his son does and therefore has more to offer to his son not just by way of how do you deal with hardship and failure in america but also by way of how do you earn the good opinion of people whose good opinion may be of importance to you yeah yeah i would add to just on this question of sully failing as a father we also learn that sully in fact still owns the house that he grew up in so he's lived in this in this town right since he was very very small and so once in a while he'll drive by this this home that he he grew up in and in one portion of dialogue between sully and peter as they're driving around together we learn that Sully's father was a horrible, you know, wife beater, probably a drunk, and he tried to separate his his mother and dad during one brutal fight and it turns out his dad beat him and almost killed him. So, I think in part we can extrapolate from that that Sully might also have left not only because he was unhappy with his wife, not only because she's domineering and maybe didn't like it, but I think he the implication is that he fears that he would have become this father that he knows was was not only a bad father but a, a kind of evil guy. And so there's this sense that Sully sometimes doesn't know the depths that he thinks he might have descended to in a weird way he expects himself to get worse over time that's just how he thinks about himself and so there's that kind of dark background element that is added by the director i should add i think there's a kind of philosophical psychological core to the film which which we can talk about in a minute but i, I would just one thing we haven't touched on is just the many comic fun moments in the film that that show you how these relationships get solidified and developed so peter and sully kind of 
first start to rebuild their relationship when Sully decides that he wants to steal Carl Roebuck's snowblower to use for Miss Barrel, right? So they have to drug the dog that is guarding. And, and so they go to the supermarket and buy ground beef and they put these drugs on the ground beef and they wait and they break in. And, you know, so it's a very comic scene when Dylan is climbing over the fence to to get in after they think the dog must be sleeping. You know, he says something like, I couldn't have predicted that I would be doing this with the father who left me when I was, you know, one years old. There are lots of funny scenes with the one-legged lawyer where, you know, Sully is just shaking his head. How can I have such a bad one-legged lawyer? And so as dark as the movie is, I think we've been sort of emphasizing the the darkness. There are these absolutely hilarious, affecting moments that, you know, show you people being able to find contentment and sort of decency right in the midst of all this failure and and darkness. Yeah, I think there's a lot to this, to the comedy, to how these people's ordinary lives lead them into troubles that at least when you look at them from the outside as an audience are very, very funny because you can see with the greatest of ease that there's another path they could take, that you don't need to get into an argument with the contractor boss guy about this stuff and try to steal his snowblower. And that's the running joke of the movie. Carl they steal Robert it back from asshole. one another, yeah. Bruce Willis at his most assholeish. He inherited the business from his father and doesn't care how it run- he runs it because it works and he gets money. He's the money in this little town. And being the money in a very small town that's not going anywhere is just enough for him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he has absolutely no ambition. And he won't pay, as you said, the workers' compensation. He won't pay health benefits to Paul Newman, who got hurt on a job. Maybe he has a claim. Maybe he doesn't. Who knows? You litigate these things. It's America. You sue somebody. But Paul Newman sucks also at suing people. And so uh, instead of getting uh, a legal remedy, he just decides to steal the snowblower. And then, of course, Carl Robach steals it back. And then he steals it again. And, and, and this goes on throughout the movie. The petty is hilarious but also you get to see that these people kind of enjoy the competition you know it's there's nothing for a man to do in this town aside from the occasional poker game i guess and uh, maybe and they don't yeah they don't that's their version of you could say conflict but they're not actually harming each other right i mean as you suggest you could see it would be completely understandable for sully to react in a much more bitter angry way kind of full of kind of hatred and contempt for this guy who's inherited all this money that's ha- now kind of lording it over him but he doesn't you know Sully's version of flying off the handle is stealing the snowblower and giving it to his his ex-wife to hide in the garage right in the grand scheme of things right this is far from the worst thing that could happen and so that shows a kind of decency and respect for boundaries i guess i would say here's my theory on why the film is compelling why the novel and the source material is compelling i don't know where richard rousseau started but I, but i would say in all of his books in, in the movies that emerge from them there's this attentiveness to kind of the trials and tribulations of very ordinary people who are kind of likable, but also, you you know, contemptible to a certain extent because, you know, you think that they should be better. So I think what Rousseau and the director Benton bring out is that human beings don't understand who they are, who and what they are. So in, in a way, this is just the problem of self-knowledge that it's the core of a, a lot of great novels and movies. But the spin that Benton and Rousseau put on this is that there's a strange eagerness that human beings seem to have to define themselves 
by their worst past actions, right? And so you see this in Sully, you see this in a lot of characters in the movie where they take their past failures, their most significant failures. And so in Sully's case, of course, it's the decision to leave his family. And they see themselves through the lens of that one failure and kind of continue to remain in the prism of that one act. So they embrace a kind of determinism about their own particular characters that if they stop for a moment, they should see that they're better than they than they think they are. They are better than they think they are. And I think that's a real insight about human beings is that it's and it's a bizarre thing, right? Why would why would people choose to think so badly about themselves? But you see it in Sully, right? He just thinks that, oh, I'm a screw up. I was a bad father. I'm not a particularly good contractor. I'm not a very good tenant to Miss <laughs> to Miss Barrel, right? Go go down the list. But as the movie moves along, right, the audience sees, and then I guess the audience sees along with Sully he coming to the realization that, oh. I'm actually a better tenant than I thought I was. I'm actually a better friend than I thought I was. I'm actually, I'm becoming a better father now. And I'm actually a pretty good grandfather. We haven't emphasized the the relationship that he develops with his grandson, Will, which is a kind of beautiful little kind of micro portrait of a relationship. And so that's the kind of, I would say, kernel that the movie develops over the course of 90 to 100 minutes is why, why are people so eager to think badly about themselves and how how do people get shaken out of that? And it's this small sort of change in one's disposition towards oneself that can kind of be life-changing, right? Because at the end of the film, you see Sully has the genuine possibility of being a father, of being a grandfather, of being a friend in a much more self-conscious, deep way. And so nothing has changed really circumstantially. I mean, he wins a $5,000 trifecta bet, but that's a fair amount of money, but it's not life-changing money. So there's not a kind of dramatic change in circumstance, but you can't help get the feeling that his life is going to be significantly psychologically different moving forward. And so it's kind of a subtle thing, but it's a quite beautiful thing that the director evokes over the course of the movie. Yes, yes, it is. And I think this is connected with the Thanksgiving theme. How do you get to a point where you understand what you have for which you should give thanks And there's somehow self-respect involved in giving thanks. Give thanks for primarily family and the goods it involves has to do with an awareness that some of the conditions and in a way the the happiness of a family is beyond human action. Sometimes it's not about what you do, it's about what things happen to you. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. And that's especially obvious when you see people fail. And part of that is a sociological issue. The whole town is dying. These are older people. Not a lot of kids. You know, is there a future? Who knows? Why hope then? People can give up. There are times nowadays, you know, it's, you can see, just look around, Americans giving up, hopelessness and helplessness spreading in the land. You want to see this sort of small town, quarrels, bickering, the misery. It's just Twitter. This happens on Twitter every second of every day. But in this small town, it's much less bad because people do have to put up with each other and they learn to see the good in each other by habit, by going on with things. Mm-hmm. Life going on day after day, you see, you know, it's not all bad. The ambiguities of life are somewhat more tolerable when people need each other. But as success makes people believers, so also in a strange way, as you said, does failure. They come to believe that that's what they are. Why would you identify with your failure? Why would Sally uh, so obsess about how bad his father was? 
because he failed to stop him, because he had the, the moral impulses and the natural beliefs in justice that you know, all healthy boys have, and he failed. Why would you identify with the things that are out of your control? Well, doesn't everybody, when they give thanks, isn't yeah, giving yeah. thanks about realizing there's a kind of, there's got to be some kind of cosmic and divine order that's sort of providential, not guaranteed, but it's sort of there. It's beyond who you are. All people realize at some level their, their their limits, their mortality, and therefore they need their reliance on something greater. But it might be that uh, your fate is misery. This is what people in this story have to shake off or are tempted by. Even the son who left this dying town and went to college and so on returns because, you know, he feels fated. Maybe this is the best I can do. Maybe I'll just be miserable. Loses his wife. But it turns out that he doesn't have to give up and that his dad, Sully, won't give up. And that his cussedness also has this good side to it that he doesn't have giving up in him. That's, yeah. the, that's the good thing about Sully. And it, it, it's a lot of Paul Newman's charm as an actor. He won't give up. All of these nonsensical things happen, all of his various sufferings. He's halfway there to becoming a cripple with his bum leg, but he won't give up. And that's somehow admirable that he has survived the failure of his dreams and expectations and so forth without losing what he thought he was. But he doesn't seem to realize that it's his friendship with these various people around town. That's what defines him and his friendship uh, with his son and grandson. As you said, we can't talk about all of these things. It's just a short podcast. And then everybody, you know, go. you have to watch the movie and then think you'll enjoy it. It's a much better Thanksgiving movie than most. There's a very short list and this is one of them. Precisely because it gets at this question. Why is it that we would even be thankful in the first place? Which in a way is clearest when you look at people who seem like maybe they have nothing for which to be thankful. And maybe they don't even have the capacity. And yeah, it turns yeah. out they're not that hopeless and they're not that helpless either. You see them trying harder, as you said, to, to realize that they're not as, as bad as they might want to believe so that they can give up. It's a strange story because people are tempted. To become more virtuous by being friendly to each other and doing good things for each other. Usually people are tempted to do worse, not to do better. In this yeah. story, because they start where they start as failures, they're tempted to do better. Right. Even contractor Carl Robach, who's the, the one successful guy in the movie in the con in the circumstances, that is, he can hire a new busty secretary to screw around with every other month, it seems, and then exasperate his wife. Even he becomes somewhat more humane and partly by losing his wife. She's much better than he deserves and she is not able to persuade him that he could get better. This is not a guy who cheats on his beautiful wife because he's a playboy or a celebrity. He cheats on his wife because he knows she's much better than he deserves. He too, yeah. like everybody else, feels he's a failure and that all he deserves is pretty miserable assignations. Right. Somehow everybody is affected by this social issue. Town's not doing well. Nobody sees a way forward and they take it out on each other. They take it out on themselves. Strangely enough, these people don't surrender their humanity, which is the contrast with Twitter, as I said earlier. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because they still have to get along and get together for the local uh, poker game. And as you say, the wife throws out Carl Robach, contractor guy. He goes to his employee uh, whom he's cheating out of his worker's comp to sleep on his couch. It's hilarious. It's absurd yeah. in a way. But it also kind of makes sense because they're all in a pretty bad situation. And uh, what are you going to do? Right. It's still the guy you're going to work for next month. It's still somebody you need to get along with. And through that experience of working and getting along, they do get the jobs done. They do make a living. It's not the living they would want to make, but it's real. Right. I would say, uh, too, there's a kind of nod by Carl Roebuck 
I mean, this is a little bit subtle. Maybe it's overinterpretation, but I think the suggestion is Sully. Sully must be a pretty good co- subcontractor. That Carl Roebuck could just say, "You're not working for me anymore." Ever, but he doesn't because so, I think he probably thinks Sully does pretty good work. And you know, since they're friendly, he knows he should do right by Sully by continuing to give him work, even if he's not going to pay him the workers' comp. The other detail I would add too is just to to bring out the the beauty of the relationship between Sully and his grandson Will. At one point, Sully leaves Will alone for longer than he should have, and of course, the you know the boy is probably six, I would say f- five or six years old, and so gets quite scared. He's, you know, standing in the middle of this neighborhood, not knowing where his grandfather went. And so he goes back to his father and, you know, tells his father he was scared. And so Sully knows he screwed up and he needs to make up for it. And so he arrives at his ex-wife house to basically apologize to the grandson, Will. He ends up giving Will a little pocket watch. And his strategy to help Will kind of overcome his fear of different things in the world is just to say, okay, I'm going to be brave now, but I'm going to be brave for one minute. Right. And there's this hysterical scene at the end of the film where Sully gives Will the lawyer's prosthetic leg. And he says, you know, take this thing, walk across the bar and give it back to Worf, the, the lawyer. So, you know, this kid is five and he's given this ugly scary object you know hold i mean when i was five i can't imagine wanting to grab this thing much less walk it to a one-legged man right in this dark bar but you know he kind of points like look at your watch just be brave for 30 seconds or a minute and so it's this comic but wonderfully affecting scene but of course what this shows you is that sully in his head knows the strategy for self-improvement that you know he could apply it to him his own life like be respond be a dad for one minute right (laughs) Why why couldn't he have thought of this many, many, many years ago? But of course, it's funny that he hasn't and he's not capable. So it's just sort of shows you that even if you can sort of see the way the path forward for other people, it's very hard to apply that to to your own life. Yeah, I think that's part of the wisdom of the movie. If you help somebody else, it is somewhat easier in earning their gratitude to respect yourself. If you try and focus on yourself, you might find your will is not quite as strong or your habits not good enough or your talents not quite equal to the challenge. Right. Or that you run out of patience. But of course, there's also just this sort of difference. Uh, Adults are aware of their mortality and their failures, and they're very hard to forget. You meet somebody you know, everything you've ever gone through with that person in some way happens again. It's how you react to when you see the person. It's how you talk. It's what comes up. Is this going to turn into a fight? Is this going to be a happy meeting, etc. All of those things from the past come up. Kids don't have memories. And they don't understand much about time. So one minute might be all that that kid understands. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So it's much easier. It's just for, for those psychological and moral and intellectual reasons, much easier than the burden of adulthood. Part of what's so clever about the story is the suggestion that by taking a smaller challenge, rather than trying to redeem himself, doing right by his grandson, Sully becomes a better man. Right. By yeah, the yeah, end yeah. of it, uh, you can say, all right, at the beginning, Paul Newman charmed me, but but I wasn't being galled or suckered. There really is something to this character, Sully. The casting of the movie has that character throughout. At the beginning, these people were stars or at any rate, very famous actors, and they're very interesting, but they're not in their usual roles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Bruce Willis in this story does not save the day. He's not the everyman. Who is just very cocky, but that's okay because he is being nasty or witty to some bad guy and a friend of the people. No, he's just a selfish rich guy. And yeah. he has the exact same Bruce Willis quality, 
but because the situation is very different and he's not a popular hero for once and he's not even exactly an everyman, you see that he's quite nasty. But throughout the story, he tones it down. And that's true of the other characters as well. By the end of the story, you see what a tender and vulnerable woman Melanie Griffith plays as the, the wife of Bruce Willis. And there's something brave in her as well. So the screenplay and the direction of Robert Benton really help bring out parts of what made these actors so interesting that we yeah. don't usually see. Because again, in this situation, they're failures, they're dealing with the fact that their lives haven't worked out, their dreams are all gone, and they have to make the best of this situation. It's much funnier and more tender a movie than you would think a movie about a small town that's failing economically and socially would be or should be. Right. Maybe it's a bit of a fairy tale. Maybe it's that, that Frank Capra element that we love in the movies. What are you going to do? It's all America. But I think it's not just cinematic charm. I would say that if you just try to understand these characters, if you just try to understand the people on Twitter, if you just try to understand why Americans are so angry now, they wouldn't be so angry if at some level they didn't want this, if they didn't want to somehow be needed by somebody and be able to prove themselves to be good enough to earn the gratitude and some kind of respect, a good opinion of a community, yeah. even a small community. Because otherwise they would be kind of satisfied with their situation or they would run away from it. Yeah, maybe you can... Uh, happiness suggests that they would want to do better and then they feel somehow that they cannot be part of any kind of community. You said something too before we started recording that I, I wanted to ask you about, Titus. I mean, you attributed it to the director and I guess I would probably add in the mix just the source material, but I think Rousseau and Benton are both really good at creating these scenes that are kind of set pieces and they have a kind of internal integrity, these little moments. So the, you know, the the example that I just gave is is a good example of this, of Will, the little boy, carrying this prosthetic to this one-legged lawyer in this dark bar. I mean, it's pregnant with dramatic meaning, but it's really funny. There's a scene when Sully is, he, he goes to jail in the middle of the movie for a couple of days and he gets out to attend the funeral of poor Hattie, the crazy woman, right, who had been wandering around. He's a bearer of the coffin and they're telling him all the stuff that's happened. And he keeps dropping the coffin as he's explaining all the horrible stuff that that's going on. And, you know, he says something like, you know, a guy goes to jail for three days and the whole town falls apart. I mean, it's an important moment because it's helping him realize right, who, who he is to all of these people. I mentioned the scene where they're initially stealing the snowblower, where they have to drug the, the dog. And, and so there are these little little scenes that sort of have an integrity and comedy and, and drama to them. It's almost like things that would have worked. And I think you said this in the run-up to the show, if they were on stage in a play. So just say more a little bit about that aspect of the movie that what you know why you think that either Benton or this source material sort of you know works on on stage rather than on film well uh, you read the novel so you would know better about that but I, I think some of these things must come from the novel because of the way they affect the plot the, yeah yeah you don't see that much of the small town you see 10 characters six of which are important and they're very good at showing you locations around town there is the jail or the bar or the local contractor's office or the two, three houses you see. They're very convincing, but it's not a small town. It's just a background for these characters. And you have mm -hmm. to look at these characters and their American drama. It's too big for a small town in a certain way. It's dying for an audience. You can see that what's happening in these people's lives is not random. 
This is all very telling. And I'll just give one example of how clever the humor is in the movie. Bruce Willis, contractor guy, has a, a mean, mean Doberman pincher to guard his little positions there. And as you said, they have to drug the dog to steal it. Sully and his son. Carl Robach, Bruce Willis, just steals his snowblower right back. But he makes a gift to Sully of the Doberman. And of course, when uh, Paul Newman sees it, he's terrified. He's in close quarters, confined with this really angry dog that he thinks maybe the dog is angry at him. It's a very human reaction to think that the dog has a moralistic objection to your prison. (laughs) But, uh, But that's how he feels. He can't help it. Turns out the dog is now a coward. He got drugged. He failed of his guard duty and he's now a coward. And so that's, so the gift is partly because uh, Bruce Willis wants to get rid of this dog that's not useful anymore. He is not a kind man, to say the least. Never loved the dog. But he also thinks that maybe this guy will love the dog, you know? It's it's not exactly just getting rid of a dog. And he can also, with justice, blame Paul Newman for the dog becoming a coward. He drugged him. He should deal with the consequences of his actions. Isn't that Right. All right. of these things go together, but the point I wanted to make is that the dog is stands in for all of the characters in the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He failed, and now he's a coward. And what are you going to do about that? Yeah. And But, you know, he takes care of the dog, and things turn out to be okay for him. But it is also a lesson learned. I think the, the scene you mentioned, uh, he punches a cop who is the petty local tyrant who can harass these people because they're poor and the fine would really annoy them. Played by Philip Seymour Hoffman being an asshole as usual. Very convincing. So as you say, he gets out of jail for a funeral and he says, I'm gone for one weekend, Thanksgiving weekend in jail. And then the whole town falling apart. Well, town needs him somehow. By losing this, he realizes... And so with all of these characters, by losing some of what they had, they realize what they stand to lose further, so to speak, or what they might have to do to get back what they've lost. Mm -hmm. So the whole story tries somehow in this theatrical way, one scene after another, the relationships between these various characters to show how might people claw their way out of this suffering without getting too sentimental. It's precisely the, the impulse that leads Paul Newman to steal the snowblower from Bruce Willis. He wants justice in some way. He wants to get his own back. This guy cheated him out of something. He's going to get something else in return. Bruce Willis was a thief to him in a sense. He is going to be a thief to Bruce Willis in return. It's tit for tat. That's the pattern of justice. And then the story uses that to get these people to see that there are not just that there are limits to that, but that the moral impulse behind it, not to be suckered, not to be gulled, not to be abused, is somehow about integrity, about dignity, about self-respect. And that you can't force that out of people. It's easier to get people to treat you the way you would want if you do something good for them. And of course, it is only a combination of uh, the affection that binds them and uh, life's hard knocks that gets them to realize that, that they stand to lose something and that they are still in a position to protect something precious. And then they realize it might be better if they get along in a less petty or, or, or conniving and exploitative spirit. The situation is not going to transform dramatically, politically or economically, but it could transform significantly in a moral way if they accept their losses rather than try to take it out on everybody else in town. And that gradual acceptance of mutual duties is what makes this more of a community story and a family story and finally a Thanksgiving story that it might seem at the beginning. And I thought that was quite impressive. Yeah, it's a funny movie in that way. I guess the choice, and and maybe this is, you know, this has to, to do with source material, the Rousseau novel, as much as the director, but one choice for the story of Sully would have been sort of grand, dramatic arc, big portrait of who he is in the context of this town 
right? So you'd really get a sense of place. I mean, the, the place is called North Bath. But as you say, whether that's to do with the novel, it's, it's been, you know, 35 years since I've read the, the novel. But so whether it has to do with the novel or, or the director, I don't know. But it seems like Rousseau and, and Benton didn't go in that direction and said, no, we can we can evoke this place through these bizarre stage like moments you know whether it be will and the with the prosthetic leg or the stealing the dog and in a series of these kind of interesting and bizarre set pieces will evoke place and an obligation more than or not more than but just differently than a kind of big bigger dramatic arc with fully fleshed out backdrop of what this place is. So yeah, I think that's it was just an interesting choice that, I mean, maybe Benton had to make it because of the nature of what's in the novel. I'll have to see M- Empire Falls. Maybe that would be an interesting contrast or, or comparison, but I haven't, I haven't seen it. Indeed. Well, Flag, I think we're coming to the conclusion of our podcast here. And I think that's a very good note to end on. It's always a question, how do you translate a novel to a film? The, the film requires more by way of confrontations in dialogue and cinematic effects. You want to see the, that guy's face and then the lines changing on his face. You want to see his expression. You want to see how this hits him so that you can understand to some extent as, a, as an audience how to interpret what's happened. It depends on the visuals primarily. And so on film, it works wonderfully you see these characters interact and how their relationships change through the movie. Because again, unlike a novel, the movie you can see easily in one sitting, a very pleasant evening. And by the time it's over, you still remember how it started. It, It all makes one continuous impression on you. And you get a sense of satisfaction at the end that I think suggests uh, there's a kind of intention in the the movie making in Robert Benton's screenplay and direction to have the movie work on the audience to an extent, the way it works on Sully and some of the other characters. Yeah, yeah. The realizations sneak up on you gradually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Trying to say it's not always a tragic transformation. These things do happen, but, you know, do you want a tragic transformation on the other hand? You can say, well, this happened and life was never the same. That's not so often good, <laughs> you know? Right. But instead, he goes on down this somewhat more comic path where people do suffer, but gradually a realization sneaks up on them and certain changes in behavior allow them to see themselves through through the eyes of people who care for them and even love them. That's why it's a quirky movie and often sad and it deals with a situation with characters and small towns that are failing and where misery is more common than joy. But in that sense, it is almost Capresque in building out of this great difficulty, a certain kind of American solidarity and uh, this hope that freedom can work for these people because they they will end up making moral choices on the basis of that freedom. They need quite a bit of nudging and some knocking inside the head, but they get there. Yeah. And we should say, I think Benton, he was nominated for an Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. I think New got a nomination for best actor i don't know who he didn't win but i don't, I don't remember who won that year so it did garner some critical attention at the time of its release and you know it's it's great to see jessica tandy bruce willis melanie griffith dylan walsh pruitt taylor vince plays you know newman's best best buddy he, he did a wonderful job too so it is just a great all-star ensemble cast all right, Flag, we will close here and uh, try and find some more of these stories about uh, small town life. We were just talking about doing a podcast on Local Hero. Also very quirky, but more charming and much less sad uh, 80s picture. We'll try and add this to our growing middle brow series of 
movies about community in America that are somewhat more hopeful than our staple uh, movies about communism in Europe. Right. <laughs> are not about community <laughs> and finding friendship, love, and hope. So it's good to have some of these other uh, pictures about uh, an ordinary life that we can be amused by and enjoy and have some of uh, life's more pleasant surprises sneak up on us. Sounds good. Thanks for joining me again and all the best until next time.